Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within and like the phoenix enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest is Lee Siegel, the owner of the fine jewelry design firm Bleeker & Prince. Amid the challenges of life under COVID, her decision to deliver her second child at home provided her an opportunity to exhibit the courage formed from her experiences of serving in the Israeli army and moving to Singapore at a very young age. Please welcome Lee Siegel. Welcome Lee to Phoenix Tales. I start the conversation off by asking one question, and that question is, has there been an event in your life that was challenging personally or professionally that might have redirected the course of your life? I'm sure there's been several, but the first one that comes to mind is my second birth, which uh, with my son, um, Izzy, who's a year and a half. And he was born May 2020. So that's just the start of COVID. And I ended up changing to a home birth, which um, affected me in a way that just became a, a journey of self-discovery. And I think the moment itself was just strongest experience I've had, you know, being at home and with three people in the room. And it was just magical for me. It was um, something that I didn't know I would experience. (laughs) So can you tell us what the challenging part of that was? Was that a choice that you made or was that a choice that was kind of forced on you because of the circumstances of COVID? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. There was a lot of challenges, which I kind of forgot to mention. Um, I think the biggest part was dealing with my fears. I had this dream of doing a home birth, but I never had the courage to go through it. And what happened was in COVID, they went on the news saying that people going into the hospital, they might end up coming in alone because there'll be tests when you come in. And they'll check check your temperature, and just the ex- like the thought of going into a hospital alone to experience this gave me that last push I needed to. And from there, it started a whole um, process of the hard part, which is you know getting my husband to be on board and understanding this decision and what it means for me, and dealing with the obstacles that I want to removed before the baby comes, which was mainly in fear, really, from the way, you know, birth is perceived in a lot of Western culture. And I think that there's, maybe that's just making it a little big, but you know what I mean? It's just not um, the obvious choice. And then let's go back. So you said this is your second child. So what was the first first child's um birthing process like? Was it much more traditional? Were you in a hospital? Where was it? Yeah, I I was in New York and I gave birth in Lenox Hill and I ended up getting epidural and getting, um, I don't remember what it's called, that thing that kind of makes labor go a little bit faster. Um, 
and oh, uh, Pitocin. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so not really the way I kind of dreamed it again, but I, it was a beautiful birth and I, I remember it in a very positive way, but I do remember things that I wanted to change and experience in a different environment. So I know I, I gave birth in a hospital and I also was administered Pitocin and I also opted to have the epidural just because I knew that the Pitocin would prolong the labor and it could be hours and hours and hours. So I understand the process of going through and making those decisions, but did you feel at all disempowered at any point in that process where you were like, well, maybe I don't want the Pitocin or maybe I'm not sure about the epidural, but yet the medical staff kind of said, no, this is what we need to do. So I think it's a very fine line, but you're in a state of, you know, you're giving birth. It's not like you're, you're 100%. Um, you're, you're very sensitive to everything and any word at your direction kind of shifts your mind. And um, I think everyone's doing the best they can and doing their jobs and what they know. But the truth is that, yes, you get a stranger coming in your room every half hour asking you again if you want that. If you if you want that epidural, are you sure you, want, you don't want it? Do you want me to call it? It takes a while until it comes in. So that really makes things a little bit difficult. When you said that you had to overcome fears to be able to do a home birth, what was the biggest fear that you had to confront? Thinking that I'm doing something that might put me or my baby in danger if anything doesn't go. You know, the, the way we see it is, is like the first thing that pops up is what if something happens and you didn't make it to the hospital on time? So you'll never forgive yourself. I mean, that's like the strongest part. So was the second birth in New York as well? Yeah. OK. Um, and did you have a midwife or a doula? Yeah, I had both. I had a midwife and a doula. And it was, again, like the pandemic started, everyone was going crazy. You know, COVID started in New York around March, end of February. Where, so like it took me a while to find a midwife. And then did you have a traditional home birth in bed or did you do a water birth? I mean, can you kind of tell us what decisions you had made? So I I got a, bat, a, a birth bath, I think that's what they're called. Um, and yeah, we, we kind of set it up and I had, um, I, I had a great birth. I mean, I was in labor, kind of not in labor, but having contractions for two weeks, like on and off. But every time it felt like I was going to actually get, go into labor. So that was for around two, three weeks. So when it actually started, I guess my body already went through a process and everything came pretty easily. Really cool. <laughs> That's awesome. But how does that work also? Like, did you have the pediatrician right there or did you have to then transport him to a pediatrician? Because usually when a child is first born, it's the first doctor that really sees the, the baby is a pediatrician. Right. So midwives, is, they're supposed to take care of the baby for the first month. You don't need to go to see a doctor. Um, they come in and a day after they weighed him, they took all the the minimum test that you need. I mean, this is by law. So I mean, this, it was fine. Um, so we didn't really leave the house at all since he was born the first month and a half, I think. So she came to visit. Everything was fine. They weighed him. It was a natural birth. I didn't have any stitches. So I also didn't need, you know, there was, it was very, I was very lucky with everything. 
Uh, you make it sound like you're true mother nature. So earth mother, <laughs> divine. Okay. So I'm going to ask a question just to sort of get a little bit of background. So when your mother had you, did she have uh, give birth naturally? Uh, my mom, yeah, she gave birth naturally. And it was, yeah, she didn't take epidural. She had this um, thing against it. So um, she had a bad experience when she was young and she got it when she broke her ankle. So she had all her births natural at a hospital. Oh, I see. And where were you born? In Israel, in Haifa. And so is that more standard for women to have natural childbirth in Israel as opposed to in the U.S.? I mean, much less of like scheduled C-sections, but no, not, a, not more than the U.S. at all. It's so interesting because when I was going through the pregnancy process and, and then through motherhood, it, it was fascinating to me how fraught, you know, and how politically charged a lot of these decisions are for about childbirth, right? So there are people who are incredibly, you know, vocal and verbal about, you know, all births should be natural. And then there are people who are just like, no, you know, you should do it the traditional way. So when you decided to make these decisions, and I understand that you're sort of in a COVID bubble, did you feel any sense of the those societal, you know, the discourse around your decisions at all? I don't care a lot about what people think, um, but my parents, people that are very close to me, I think their opinion got me. It wasn't natural to them, but they trusted me. They kind of had their doubts, but they they know me. I kind of go my way. And my doctor, who I really, I have nothing but good things to say about him, and he was so against it. <laughs> so um, that threw me off for a little bit, but I just felt it kind of was stronger than me at that point. Interesting. And then you made reference to that you'd had a um, couple of other sort of uh, pivotal moments. So was there another pivotal moment that kind of was also as life-altering as their second childbirth? I guess when I opened my business was a big step, um, a big, you know, a direction that you choose that has a whole world open up, becoming independent. It was half a decision I made and half that was made for me. I was um, working at a diamond company and my boss and I got into a fight. I was very opinionative and in the heat of the moment, he was like, why don't you just go open your own thing? And I was like, okay, fine. And kind of quit, got fired. Um, and I wasn't really planning to do that. So not, not at that time. I knew I had it in my head to someday open my own business, but it wasn't that close that I thought it would happen. And, you know, who knows, like all these things you plan to do and you're saying, I'll do that later on. So I don't know if I would have done it in the different circumstances, but yeah, that, that started a whole wild journey. It's about almost 10 years now. So, And how old were you when you made that decision or the decision was made for you? I think I was 27, 26. And can you tell the audience what it is that you do now? Yes, gladly. I, uh, I'm a jewelry designer. I have my own brand. We sell fine jewelry and we do a lot of custom made pieces. So after you got fired and you were sort of forced to start your own thing, what were some of the most challenging moments or the biggest obstacles that you had to overcome? When I zoom out and look at all those years, 
there were so many moments where everything seemed impossible. And every moment like that, you kind of are like, how am I going to deal with all of this now? And you just kind of deal with it because you decide to get out of bed and, and do it. And, and things get solved and there's the next day tomorrow. And then you reach that point again in a different circumstances and it gets a little smaller. So that journey really, you feel it and you can be, if you're mindful about it, then you can enjoy the ride a little bit. I'm sure there are a lot of valleys and peaks um, through the 10 years that you're trying to build your business. So was there one moment that stands out as being like, wow, that was really the nadir of all of this, right? Like, I don't know how I survived that moment or that period of time. I actually have a few good ones, not just one. <laughs> like I did a lot because, you know, I'm originally from Israel and I started my business in Israel and I always had my affair with New York and I would I would have loved to move back at that time. But I knew that it was kind of lonely for me and I, I really wanted to do it with a partner. So I kind of held off and I opened my business in Israel and I went on a trip to New York for work and I met my today husband. So then I, I was like, well, I'm, he couldn't move back to Israel. And I moved to New York eventually. And I opened another business in New York, the same thing. And I think that just to begin with, no matter what business you do and what, it just kind of adds a lot of more baggage to deal with. So I had to get my work visa and go through all that. I'm, I'm not American. So, so that, there was a lot of moments. There was that. I had a partner that tried to had a partner it was like a project we did together and yeah you know, went bad <laughs> and I shared an office and then I got kicked out I didn't know where I would go I started knocking on doors I didn't know if I would get my work visa there were there were like a lot of moments that were just and many more I'm sure but I don't have one specific it's really like that that moment where everything falls apart and it's more your reality and how your perception of reality, actually. Now I can say that at the time I didn't have all this uh, experience. What enabled you to keep moving forward? Because a lot of people envision opening a small business of their own, right? But I mean, there are many, many hurdles that, um, and especially for women, that they have to overcome. So I, I understand that you sort of did it by the you know seat of your pants and forged your own way. But what was it within you that allowed you to keep moving, even when the obstacles felt so immense and impossible to overcome? Yeah, I'm so happy you asked that because I make it sound all bad. But um, <laughs> the truth is what keeps you going is all everything you gain out of it. You know, so I don't know if there's anything that gives you so much back. I mean, in terms of career wise and all that, um, being independent like that and that gives you so much back that you can deal with all these obstacles, really. I do what I want for my, and I'm lucky because I'm in the arts also, you know, I'm not just doing something. I'm an artist, so I think that makes it even more deeper, all of everything I make and someone wears it. It's, it fills me in a way that I don't think anything else would. I'm so happy that I'm doing this exactly. And, and you mentioned that you grew up in Haifa. So do you feel as though living in a country where there's always some kind of turmoil also creates kind of uh, a toughness or uh, an ability to survive that perhaps some of us over here on the West may be lacking on some level. 
I'm sure that there's something in what you're saying, but I don't know anything differently. But yes, I mean, being in the army, which is something mandatory, is an experience which makes you deal with a lot of things that you wouldn't necessarily deal with at that age. How old were you and how many years were you in mandatory? I was 18 until 20. So girls, it's mandatory two years and for boys, three years. Yeah, but do you can you sort of see the thread of um, having an experience like that, which has to, in some ways, toughen you and provide you with some survival skills that you may not have you know, obtained otherwise, that that is also part of what enabled you to take those steps of both starting a business at a young age on your own, moving to a new country, and then lastly, deciding to give a home birth, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that also I was living abroad for five years when I was young. Uh, we moved to Singapore and then we moved back to Israel to a little town, not back to Haifa. That's where my parents live till today. So that was from first grade to fifth grade. I absolutely believe that these life-changing experiences, like doing something like that, going to the army, deciding to come to New York. Well, I think at that point, all these previous events kind of gave me that push to do something like that, to come and do my bachelor's in New York. It was very difficult at the time. It was like the information and the logistics around it. And I 100% believe that my experience in the army and Singapore had me dealing with a lot of things at a young age that later gave me confidence in the world and myself. What, what about your early childhood in Singapore was so challenging? Did you attend an American school or were you at uh, sort of just a regular international school? Yeah, it was in an international school. And you're asking a question that's very meaningful to me these days because I was I've been going through a very, like a whole year of kind of dealing with the past and breaking whatever and taking out, you know, whatever is still blocked there and things I didn't even know that existed. It's a very strong impact on my life that just moving to a foreign country for first grade and not knowing the language, I didn't know English. And also going back to Israel, to a town very different in culture than Singapore. And maybe not having like, you know, the support that I needed, I guess, um, to deal with this experience. So I, I, I dealt a lot on my own and there was something, you know, were left, um, like they were understanding that there was a lot of things that were hard for me at that age. Because I always say Singapore is such an amazing experience. And this is me about two years ago. Um, made me who I am. It's everything that brought me to where I am today. I still believe that, you know, but I understood that it's a lot. It's a lot to move to a different country. It's a lot to learn a new language. It's so interesting because what you're describing is basically a, a traditional immigrant story, right? And because of the American bias, you know, the, and I, I am a product of immigrants myself, that there's this perception people immigrate to the U.S. and they have these experiences where that are incredibly life-forming and in a way um, personality-forming. And for you, you had this other experience of moving across the world to a foreign country that's not traditionally looked upon as a place that people would immigrate to. And then more importantly, the language issue and when you're in first grade, 
that's about five or six. And that's when you really start to come into understanding language. So do you feel as though that has also informed you in terms of the way you can look at the world through two filters almost? Yeah, a really beautiful point you brought up because it's so specific and I've gotten that. It, I actually think in two languages and I would never look at it the way you described it right now. You know, first grade is a very specific time to learn a new language, you know, and and I and I 100% like have two languages in my, they're equal to me. The question that I really want to ask, because it's also been my experience, um, you know, the first language I learned at home was Korean and then had to learn English, right? Probably very similar to your experience at a very young age. That it's also a way in which you become an observer of the world because you had to do a lot of observing from a young age to kind of find your way in the world, right? And, And that being that observant also gives you a sense of not completely belonging in any one place because you're not ever really actively participating. So have you found that as well in your experience? Yes. I mean, you're, I, I'm hearing you say the words and I'm, takes me back to my childhood. Like I, I was definitely an observer, like, um, sure for many years, but my kind of my DNA or I don't know, it's, I'm a very lively person, kind of, I don't know what the contrary of an observer, I, I, I'm part of the situation. So I guess that kind of changed with time, but I had many years of my life more as an observer and not knowing how I fit in the situation. Like, am I doing this? Is that how they do it? Like, how should I say this or not say that? Because there was such a big culture difference from Singapore to where I moved to in Israel, like the society more. And And then what was that transition like? I I mean, I, I would imagine if I had spent five years in the U.S. during those years and then my parents uprooted me back to Korea, I would be slightly lost, right? Because there's so many cultural nuances that I wouldn't understand. Moving back to Israel was harder than moving to Singapore. I was older, I was in fifth grade, so and I didn't really know in Hebrew at the level I should, where everyone was in school. So it was hard. I cried all of fifth grade at like at night in bed. I think I, I was yeah, I mean it took me a while to adjust and to understand and to lose that feeling of being lost, like you're saying. But eventually that happened, obviously. (laughs) So I think around sixth, seventh grade, it was present for a while. You know, I I don't think I really processed it until much later, like that whole experience. I just kind of, you know, things got to be fine. You know, I'm like a social person, a friend, everything's fine. But I didn't really process it, the effect it had on all these years in little places. And then what was sort of the fallout once you started to process it? I mean, did you feel a sense of displacement or more a sense of trying to piece together for yourself your childhood from a different perspective with, you know, wiser eyes, let's say? Hard to say. I mean, again, now after this year, this process that I'm going through now just brought me the realization that there was a lot of loneliness and dealing with some situations. And again, I'm not saying this in a negative way. I just think like these are experiences we had at a very young age and we didn't really know what we were experiencing. 
that brings up an interesting point from my perspective, which is um, a lot of people, everybody has some kind of childhood scars or trauma or whatever, right? Like nobody walks through childhood unscathed, no matter how well-intentioned everybody is around us. So I know that for some of us, when we have our own child, it's in a way an opportunity for us to kind of perhaps assuage the scars or the the wounds that we might have experienced in our own childhood. So has any of that informed how you're uh, how you're mothering your children? Yeah, I think, you know, becoming a mother is this huge new mirror that you didn't even know existed of yourself. <laughs> um, and you just kind of like, oh, wow, okay. I mean, I'm, my kids are young, so I'm still kind of taking it all in. But um, yeah, I think I, I heard someone told me a very smart sentence that I take with me. It's just, you know, fixing your traumas doesn't mean going to the other extreme, you know, with your children. Like, so you need to find these this new bath. So that's been very helpful and always understanding to look at things from a perspective and not be affected so much from your traumas in your parenting, I guess. So the question I, I wanted to ask is that all of these experiences you had, you know, and the sense that we're all getting from this interview with you is of someone who's incredibly independent minded being able to problem solve in a way that enables you to still follow through with your own vision. And so my question was, do you think your experiences have given you permission almost to be this independent in thought and in spirit? Yeah, for sure. I mean, just kind of shows you that the boundaries are much bigger than what you think with every experience that you add to your life. So yeah, the boundaries get much more bigger and things don't look impossible or the impossible looks much further away. And where are you now in terms of with your business, especially post-COVID or still, I guess, in COVID? And then more importantly, after this incredible life-altering childbirth. Thank you. Bleaker and Prince is doing great. It's, it's like this whole, whole identity. It makes me very happy. As a business owner and being so in my work for so many years, before I became a mom, I was like, is my kid going to be with a nanny all day? Am I going to be home? How am I going to balance this now? What's going to happen? Like I was, there's no real, you don't know. You really don't know. And you have nine months to think about all that stuff. So I was really happy to find out that motherhood is something that I guess I was scared that I didn't that I would want to be, you know, more, more at work. And I'm actually trying to do everything I can to be more at home. And I value my time with my children. I think it's magical and the good and the bad and all that. It's not all, <laughs> but I just, I think it's, that's the essence of life. And I'm so glad I get to experience it. And so it, it kind of took a big part of my life, which obviously affected the changes of the business because the business kind of breathed through me in a way. So me trying to be, have more time for these, for reading, for being at home, like these simple things that just make me happy, you know, and, and, and learning and growing in more in the spirituality than in the business place, which I was much more there a few years back. Now I kind of want the balance 
it's really important for me to balance it. I mean, I still need to make a living and I love my job, but I really think that it's not all that. And that's wonderful. That's a great place to end. So we're going to get to the last question. If there is a song that kind of resonates with you or feels as though they had written it about you or your life, what is that song and why? I wasn't ready for that question. So I'm going to answer again with the first thing that comes to mind. Um, <laughs> Which is what we want. <laughs> yes, yes, I guess. Um, I can see. I mean, there's so many songs, really, but I can see clearly now. Ah, I love that song. It's such a happy song. And I think that it's um, we always have these moments, you know, like that everything looks dark and that it's not just a one time that's going to happen. That's going to happen to you again and again in life. It's happened to me that way. Talk about myself. And it's wonderful to know that there's always another one coming up. Another what? You mean just uh, like another moment that you can see clearly and that, you know, that blissfulness and like, that's what that song makes me feel, I guess. Like this sun is shining at you kind of. And we don't, you know, I think I aim to be in that place always, but you know, you need those ups and downs to get there. So that's wonderful. So how can people find you? And more importantly, how can they find your business? Yeah, we're online, we're social. So bleakerandprints.com, uh, Bleaker and Prince Like the Street. And we have a private showroom in the city in New York and in Israel and Tel Aviv. And of course, all the online presence. And we would love for you to reach out. Yeah, we love working and meeting new clients. Wonderful. Thank you so much for doing this, Lee. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience when I got tired of waiting. Then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they gon' ask me why I do it. I'ma say this because we gon' be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack. Focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, would. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix Tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.